Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Buenas noches. Good evening. I'm Mario Garcia, professor of Chicano studies here at UCSB. I want to welcome you to this special lecture sponsored by Arts and Lectures and the Department of Chicana and Chicano Studies. Uh, before we proceed, I want to make sure that uh, all cell phones are off, or else I personally will confiscate them. So make sure all your cell phones are off. It's a great personal as well as a professional honor to welcome Gregory Rodriguez tonight. Mr. Rodriguez is a distinguished writer and contemporary voice in American culture. We know him best as a regular opinion columnist for the Los Angeles Times. But Mr. Rodriguez is also an Irvine Senior Fellow and Director of the California Fellows Program for the New American Foundation, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan public policy institute that invests in new thinkers and new ideas to address the next generation of challenges facing the United States. Mr. Rodriguez has written widely on issues of race, national identity, religion, and immigration in such leading publications as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. Esquire magazine has listed him among the best and brightest Americans who are revolutionary, revolutionizing the way we think. He is with us tonight to discuss his recent publication, his, his recent published book, which I hold in my hands here, entitled Mongrels, Bastards, Orphans, and Vagabonds, Mexican Immigration and the Future of Race in America, that the Washington Post has listed as one of the best books of 2007. In this book, which the Los Angeles Times also calls a brilliant book, Gregory Rodriguez provides a sweeping panorama and analysis of the role that race issues and racialization, the process of defining the meaning of race, has played in the history of Mexico, among and between Mexican immigrants and Mexican Americans, as well as between people of Mexican descent and other ethnic groups in the United States. In this interplay, Mr. Rodriguez correctly argues that race has been historically an arbitrary phenomenon in which Mexicans have not only been the victims of this arbitrariness, but themselves are the creators and inventors of new meanings of race. It is in this latter role that Mr. Rodriguez further argues that Mexican Americans and other Latinos are changing and redefining the traditional meaning of race in the United States due to their flexible and diverse representation of race. As opposed to the bipolar American discussion on race based on a white and black narrative. Mr. Rodriguez, in this well-organized and extremely well-written text, stresses how Mexican and Latin American biological as well as cultural and social mixing 
or mestizaje challenges these normative views of race, especially as a Latino demographic revolution continues into the 21st century. Let me also say that I personally admire Mr. Rodriguez's courage in his opinion columns to challenge accepted ways of thinking, both among non-Latinos and Latinos. Whether you agree or disagree with him, Gregory Rodriguez makes you think and rethink about many of the major currents of our days. One final note, following Mr. Rodriguez's lecture, there will be an opportunity for discussion. And there are two microphones positioned here in front of the stage. And I ask you to come, those of you with questions, to come up if you have a question or a comment to address Mr. to Mr. Rodriguez. We also have, as you notice as you came in, in the lobby, copies of both the hardback and the paperback of Mr. Rodriguez's book. And Mr. Rodriguez will be personally available here at the end of the event to sign copies of the book. Let's now give a warm and generous UCSB welcome to Gregory Rodriguez. Um, thank you all for coming. It's very kind of you. Uh, actually, seeing this large hall gives me the willies. Reminds me of undergrad at Berkeley days. How do you do it all? Um, my book is, uh, is really a, a, an argument hidden in a history. Or is it a history hidden in an argument? Um, I, 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 I was thinking about, I wrote about a lot about the Mexicans and, and what their long-term influence would be on California and the future of the United States. And, and I don't write about it at all anymore. Uh, I got sick of it. And, uh, and I wrote this book. And it's all in the book. And I hope you get some sense of it from my talk tonight. But, um, and, and the more I wrote about it, the more I, 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 I decided that it was so hard to determine, you know, so there's, there's certain things that remain over time when immigrants come. There's certain things that, that certain disappear. There's, there's all sorts of these crazy assimilation patterns that differ from family to family, that, that differ from, from sibling to sibling. And it's really hard to really predict uh, if, uh, if third generation, if, if the grandchildren of a Mexican immigrant today who loves soccer will still be loving it in 2045. We don't know. Or will they, be in, will they be into the NFL or the NBA? And, and, and it's unclear because it's all such a dynamic process. But the one thing I, I seem to have, um, after years of writing about this, maybe about a decade, it seemed that it was the, really the notions of race that would be the, have the most profound long-term effect on, on the United States. Um, that and the, the meeting of Guadalupe and the feminization of Catholicism in the United States. And, but that's, that's for others to study. But um, those seem to have been the most profound aspects. And, and so what I, what I did was this. And I asked, if, I, I, as I started the book, I started to think, okay, where do you start this book? What does Mexican-American scholars have disagreed? Where does Mexican-American history start? Does it start with the first giant wave of the 20th century in the, in the Mexican Revolution? Uh, does it start in 1848 at the end of the Mexican-American War? Or does it start in 1590? at the birth of the, of, of the Mexican people. And, 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 and unfortunately for me, I, I determined that it started at 1519 because that made the book a whole lot harder to research. And so I started at 1519, and, and, with, with, um, and, and I'll start with this, and I'm, I'm totally winging this, so please forgive me. Um, I'll start with this, and one of the things that struck me was, um, was this 
myth that we don't know or we don't have, and I'd like everyone to know, and some other Mexican-Americans and Mexicans to know, and Anglos and other Americans to know this, 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 this story, that it's the first documented uh, story of, of mestizos, of mixed, uh, people of mixed indigenous and, and European ancestry in, in the Americas. It's the, the first, it was a, from Bernal Diaz's uh, con conquest of New Spain. And it's just, it's just it's this lovely little story. It's, it's there, it's not hidden, and people have read it, but it just never seemed to have got the, got the play that it should have. And, and it was um, when, when Cortes first uh, 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 landed on, uh, and forgive, for, forgive me, it's been a while since, I, since I've talked about this book, um, uh, landed on the on the coast of Yucatan, he was told by the, the, the local Mayans that there were some, there were some, some white men nearby. And, and uh, uh, Cortes thought, you know, wow, it's, it's my duty as a Spaniard and, and a Christian to save these men. So he sent, he sent off some men. Uh, he asked, first of all, he asked the, 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 the Mayans to, to help him find the gentlemen. He said, no, 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 these people will kill us. And so, and so Cortes then sent his own men. Uh, one of the men hid a note in his beard, and they took enough uh, uh, jewelry to buy their freedom. And, and they, they went to the, um, the first man, um, uh, 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 and, and forgive me if I've gotten the names wrong, uh, but he went to the first man, and, and he, was, he was a priest, and he had been imprisoned uh, uh, for, for 10 years or so, and he had been part of a shipwreck, and, and, and he had been captive by Mayans, and, and they, they, they negotiated his freedom, and I was like, oh my goodness, thank you. I, he, he was counting the days. He, he thought, I think he thought it was a Sunday, I think it was a Wednesday by then, but he wanted to go back to civilization, and he went with the Spaniards, and, and then he said, can you take us to the, to the, take us to the next man? And... Um, and the next man they, they found, and, and then he had long since been freed, and, and he was married to, uh, married to a, a, the daughter of a, a, a Mayan chieftain, and he was, he was, during times of war, he was a chieftain of war himself, and, 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 the, and, the, and the Spaniards went to him and said, come back with us. You're, you're, they'll, you know, come. And he said, I, I, I can't. I, 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 first of all, and the man's wife started screaming. Like, what, what are these barbarians speaking in this foreign tongue? What do they want? That was a joke, by the way. <laughs> it's bad when you have to announce jokes. So, so, so then, um, so, this, so, so then the man said, um, "I can't go with you. Look at me. I, I'm tattooed, and I, 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 I've gone native, so to speak. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of them, and they'll never accept me back in Spain." And then finally, he says to the Spaniards, "But, but I can't go. But I'll mira mis hijos, qué bonitos son. But look at my children, how beautiful they are." That was the first documentation of the mestizo in history. Unfortunately, history didn't happen that cleanly, and nor do we learn it that beautifully. And history is much more, much, much, much more brutal and much more um, uh, uh, tendentious. And what we had instead was the Spaniards coming and setting up a dual racial system. It didn't, wasn't this beautiful recognition of mestizaje from the beginning and the acknowledgement of its beauty. It was more the Spaniards coming and realized, sort of like the, 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 the northwest quadrant of Mississippi, the Mississippi Delta, when the Spaniards were the small minority trying to protect themselves from the onslaught of a large indigenous majority. Majority. And the Spaniards had set up a racial system from the very beginning, a República de los Indios and a República de los Españoles, and they were not to have mixed. The Spaniards did have some creative policies here and there, and they realized that there were times in which mixture was good. If you could sort of, if a Spaniard could marry the daughter of a chieftain and thereby inherit the power and wealth of, that, of the status, that was okay. There were some times when they needed intermarriage to create the children of the Spaniards. So the policies of the Spanish, both the church and the empire, were fluid about interracial marriage, but it wasn't by any means an embrace of it. But in Mexico City, there was this policy of keeping them separate. 
And this lasted for several centuries. And the point is, and the point of my story is that it never worked. The Spaniards came with the idea that these people would not mix. And what happened in the meantime is that they did. And much of the activity, and actually much of the sexual activity, clearly began as, as from rape. Some of it presumably was from love. We can't count that out. And so we had the first mestizos who were born clearly to, 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 um, to, to, to which were children of rape. And they were people who didn't belong in any space. To the Spaniards, they were, they were products of an illicit affair. And to the indigenous communities they're sometimes born into, they were reminders of humiliation. By, the, by 10 years after the conquest, the word mestizo, the colloquial usage of it meant bastard. They were bastard children. But as time went on, this bastard, this children, and this is the, 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 the book title, Mongrels, Bastards, Orphans, and, and, and Vagabonds, that by the, by the, by the 1530s, there were, there were some historians talking about bands of people, bands of these mixed children that didn't belong in the Spanish city, nor the indigenous community, and they, they, they banded together and took to the road and survived where they could. And that's, this is where the story of, of the mestizo starts. Um, and, and it's a story of people who didn't belong in a rigid racial system. And let me give you an example that this is some, uh, 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 historian Charles Gibson once labeled the colonial mestizo as a pragmatic opportunist. Uh, the great uh, anthropologist at the University of Chicago wrote of, of the mestizo, Quote, his chances of survival lay neither in accumulating cultural furniture nor in cleaving to cultural norms, but in an ability to change, to adapt, to improvise. The ever-shifting nature of his social condition forced him to move with guile and speed through the hidden passageways of society, not to commit himself to any one position or to any one spot. I argue, as the Spanish attempted to, to put a, a rigid racial system on an increasingly mixed society, the mixed people themselves, the mestizos, created and, and learned to deal with race and see it as a malleable, movable, fluid category. And you can see this by the end of the 1700s. You can see court cases, and some American scholars have done great on wor work on this. You can see one legal case in which someone would be designated at four, four different races in one case sometimes even referring to themselves in different races. And the Spaniards sought to control this. And we saw by the late, colonials, with the late colonial era, we saw, we've all seen these, these, these perverse, these perverse uh, family portraits, the Casta paintings, which are hierarchical paintings of mixture where the white is at the top and, the, 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 and the, the, those who inherited both African and indigenous blood are at the bottom. And these are these, these weird you know, portraits of mother, father, and child and naming them, giving them racial determinations and a rank in the scale. And we've all seen that that was a, 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 a last-ditch effort by the Spaniards to control this mixture, to make sense of it. And early on, scholars both in Mexico and the United States said, wow, these Spaniards are really organized. <laughs> but it was a fantasy all along. As a, the elite Spaniards, the criollos, the American-born Spaniards in Mexico, they themselves were getting a little darker. And they themselves were losing their own legitimacy in the eyes of the peninsulares, the Spaniards from the, from the peninsula. And they themselves were a little freaked out, a little scared by their own taintedness. So, as the Spanish, so, 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 so race and the rigid categories began to break down and, and the Spaniards grasped for some control of it. Now as the, the, the Spaniards moved north, 
the, the system broke down even further. The further you got away from the Valley of Mexico, where, which was the seat of both the empire and the church, the, 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 fewer, the fewer authority figures you had to deal with. And the people who tended to go north, and it wasn't a friendly trip up north through the, through the northern Mexico into what's now the southwest United States, they were not the elites. These were not the, the light-skinned Spanish, uh, the, either uh, European or American-born, who were going north to found places like Los Angeles. These were largely mixed people. And the definition of race became even more fun to play with and more malleable. 1781, the Pueblo of Los Angeles was founded. We have a census from that year. We have a census in 1789. We can see between those eight, year, eight years the number of the first pobladores who actually shifted their self-racial designation. Mr. I'm making up this name. Jose Avila was a Indio in 1781. 1789, ah, he's a mestizo. We see these shifts, and maybe they married a woman with lighter skin. Maybe they went up the rank somehow. Maybe they went up the, maybe they, 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 they got a different job and made more money. But the point is, is not that whiteness wasn't favored because it was. And it continues to be in Mexico today, as it is in the United States. But that it was a fluid category that could be played with and utilized by the people, by the mixed people themselves as they saw fit. Back to, uh, to Eric Wolf's definition of belonging in no particular spot but trying to find a space. For, the, for the, one of the earliest, uh, what I, I thought was a great uh, colonial historian, uh, J.I. Israel wrote that the, one of the most amazing things about uh, studying the mestizo in early colonial Mexico was that they didn't exist. There no were records of them. These were people that didn't belong. They weren't supposed to be there. They didn't fit into the system. Over time, we know what happened. We know that they overwhelmed the system. And that the average Mexican is a mestizo, is mixed. So I take this, this history up north, and that's a very shorthand I gave you. And then I'm looking at the Anglo-American. A new racial system is introduced as Anglos are coming west. And there's people who had been playing with this construct of race in a sort of a malleable, fluid way were suddenly having to deal with a new racial system in which they didn't fit either. From 1850 on, uh, uh, Mexican, 1920, Mexicans were de facto whites, according to the U.S. Census. And not only because of the U.S. Census, but on one level because the definition of, um, of white meant you weren't black. And the other complicating factor was the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ended the Mexican-American War in 1848, which conferred citizenship for those in the conquered territories who remained in the territory for over a year and accepted U.S. citizenship. So, in 1848, if uh, only whites could become citizens of the United States, and if Mexicans could become citizens of the United States, then Mexicans were white. There's other also, and, and, and this question was never really solved, and it's still not solved to this day, and let me try to take you up there. In, 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 and Mari Garcia has written beautifully about a, a, a case in, in 1930, which I'll get to. From, from the, 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 the question that Mexicans, the Anglo-American racial system never knew what to do with Mexicans. They were, they were designated as whites on some level, but treated as non-whites clearly on others. And then it wasn't clear where they really belonged. They were too heterogeneous. The, mesti the, the mestizo past had created too much of variability physically to, to fit them all in and identify them as such. And even, you know, even in the worst times of segregation in the South Texas, you know that a dark-skinned uh, 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 campesino was not treated the same way as a light-skinned consul from Mexico City. It, it, it jammed the system early on, and they didn't know, Anglo-Americans didn't know where these people fit in. 
Now, in 1930, and Professor Garcia has written about this again beautifully, uh, in 1930 there was an attempt by nativists. Uh, they tried to take advantage of, uh, and please don't correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, thank you. I barely graduated from college. Uh, there was an attempt to take advantage of a 1924 law, I believe, that, that said you could not migrate to the United States if you could not become a citizen of the United States, if you were not eligible to become a citizen of the United States. And by, by the 1920s, blacks had been added to the people who were eligible for citizenship, uh, but uh, the foreign-born indigenous people were not. So there was an attempt then to, de to take whites, rather Mexicans, out of the white category. And so Mexicans were in, in, in El Paso, and it's very sad because El Paso is sort of a lovely place you've got to love because it's so sad in some level. I spent the last week in Detroit, I had the same thing, like, you've got to love Detroit because it needs your love. <laughs> but there was an attempt to turn El Paso, imagine this, into a health a spa to people to come, and, and in order to clean up their health statistics, they took all the Mexicans and took them out of the white category. And so the only remaining whites, they had better health outcomes, and therefore... What happened were Mexican-American advocates, the, the, the first, the, 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 this first growing, well, very small generation of middle-class Mexican-American advocates fought back. And this was an example of what some scholars have called the other white race strategy, of which Mexican-Americans for a large chunk of the 20th century, the advocates, sought to be claimed as white because all rights were conferred on you only if you were white. And so the longest time, Mexican-American advocates sought for this whiteness. And, 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 and the example of, of, of going to your congressman and saying, what you, they took us out of the white category, put us back. That was a poignant moment. We know that this other white strategy had its problems. We know this fam the famous case in the 1950s uh, in, in which a, a Mexican-American had been convicted of murder and his lawyer said, well, he did, there was not one Mexican-American on the jury. This was on a jury of his peers. And the judge said, well, Mexicans are white and the jury's all white, so what's your problem? Clearly an imperfect strategy. So by the, mid by, by, by the 1950s, Mexican-American advocates began consciously and subconsciously sort of to adopt the successful, the increasingly su successful strategies of African-Americans. And they then had to toe this very delicate line of, of trying to, to design be designated sufficiently enough minorities to take advantage of Brown versus Board of Education and protections for minorities without losing their whiteness. So they played this dance for a little bit. But then with the advent of, of, of clearly race-based uh, 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 answers to social problems, the Voting Rights Act, affirmative action, Mexican-Americans by the late 60s and early 70s said, we're people of color too. Overnight, Mexican-American advocates had fought to be white. The last 20th century, the last part of the 20th century, hey, we're people of color, what are you talking about? I say this jokingly, and I've get, gotten some horrible emails, but I don't say this to disparage Mexican-Americans. I think it's quite brilliant myself. Because it's the system that's stupid. And your ability, you, can you really blame a person for trying to manipulate a system that's really done you no good? I mean, we do, we, 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 tend, and it, we tend to sort of glorify Mexican-American certain moments in Mexican-American civil rights past, and there was this famous case in Orange County, and we looked back, and there was even a stamp to put on, the, and we have a stamp to, to commemorate it. But you look closely, Mexican-American advocates in that case were not trying to say segregation is bad. They were saying it just doesn't apply to us, we're white. That was not so funny, I guess. So what we have here is a, is a, is a group that, that really, that, that really that, that this, this is my, this is what I'm taking this Eric Wolf quote to, its, to the 20th century now. 
And so this, this willingness to manipulate the categories to your advantage. You may have seen this story about a, a year and a half ago. It was a really sad, poignant story of a, 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 a uh, it was a scam targeted undocumented immigrants in the Midwest. And it was a, uh, uh, it was a fake uh, uh, Indian tribe. And they had no federal accreditation, and they were advertising for 50 and somehow to $2,000 to undocumented immigrants. If you join our tribe, you will then be eligible to become U.S. citizens. This is your first step. 10,000 undocumented, mostly Mexicans, signed up. They were willing to take on and say, I am a member of this so-and-so tribe. That didn't really exist, by the way. This ability and this willingness to change categories, it's still there. You look at the census, and then, well, and okay, so we get to 1970, we get to this acknowledgement of Spanish-speaking people, and then Hispanics in 1980, and then the federal government throws up its hands, and you see the fine print, Hispanics can be of any race. No one ever really answered the question, what are Mexicans? Where do they fit into this scale? And even if they asked it, no one ever answered it. So what we have here is we have the first, we know some people from UCLA who were at these meetings at the Census Bureau. When they got these first data back from Mexican-Americans, half of Mexican-Americans said they were white, half said they were other in California, and then one of the census demographers, I am told, said, what's wrong with these people? They're white. Why don't they just admit it? The government had a problem with it. And then we happened again in 1990, there's about 50, 50, 50 white, 50 other some other race, 2,000, 50 white, 50 other, more or less. And then in, uh, coming to the 2010, there was even some talk in the Census Bureau to get rid of the some other race category so they actually have to pick one. <laughs> what was striking in my research for this book was I found out that there was the, the, the activist who I never met, and I think his name was Fernandez, uh, he was in Berkeley and a multiracial American, some organization that he, he helped run at the time, and he uh, testified to the subcommittee on, in Congress that, that, that oversaw the census. The man who effectively convinced this subcommittee to allow Americans to choose more than one race that we had on the 2000 census was a Mexican-American. Or in this case, his father was Mexican, his mother was Anglo-American, but he was deeply informed by the history of mestizo, mestizaje in Mexico. Because again, Mexico does, Mexico's a pigmentocracy, we know that. Mexico's not any perfect racial paradise. But what it did do, it has a tradition of even of struggling with these, these questions of mixture and what it means. Uh, 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 struggling with the idea of it, whereas the US, US culture has really, has been, with, with few exceptions, has been a history of denial of mixture. I mean, even Barack Obama, for all, his, for all his hope for being a conciliatory figure, which he is racially, he still speaks in the old language of race. He doesn't say, I'm mixed. He says, I'm black. He's still using the one-drop rule. He's still using the rule that was used to oppress blacks for 200 years, which is to say, if you got one drop, you're black. We're still speaking that language because it's the language of purity. It's not just the language of polarity, it's the language of purity. We don't acknowledge it. Mexicans have been dealing with it, denying it, lying about how good they are with it, all sorts of, but they were grappling with it. And we could see that happening and playing out, and it's playing out this confusion early on when the Anglo-Americans moved west. We had incidents in which one of the first things the Anglo-American legislators did in the new territories was to pass anti-miscegenation laws, which is to ban marriage between races. The one new territory that did not pass that law was in New Mexico, where they had a majority of Hispano uh, legislators. There was this resistance to it. There was this knowledge that we, there was this, un, there's always this, un, this, this lack of clarity as to where the Mexican fit in. 
Um, in 1848, uh, uh, actually before 1848, uh, thank God I, I, I tagged the book so I know where to go next. Um, there, there was this, uh, early on before the Mexican-American War was over, there was an attempt uh, uh, by a group in Congress to take all of Mexico, called the All Mexico Movement. Because the war was going so exceedingly well, that was, shoot, we might as well take the whole thing. The problem was, people said, oh God, there's Mexicans there. And it was the first imperial war, and there was this problem with, wait, if you, if you have imperial wars outside your borders, you have the problem of the people there. So, uh, and there was early on talk, what do we do with these people if we did conquer all Mexico? What do we even do with the, the 75,000 to 100,000 who are in the, what is now the Southwest now? And, and, and James Buchanan said this early on. At this point, he was President Polk's Secretary of State. He obviously later went on to become President of the United States. He said, how should we govern the mongrel race which inhabits Mexico? Could we admit them to seats in our Senate and House of Representatives? Are they capable of self-government as states of this confederacy? The, the illustrious uh, Southern, South Carolina Senator John C. Calhoun said this from the Senate floor. The downfall of Spanish America, he claimed, was its inability, inability to separate the races properly. What offended people about Mexicans very early on in the mid-19th century was not that they were one color or the other, is that they were mixed. It was their mixture that was a threat. In the country that was, that it had, had and, and, and whites who had constructed this notion of purity to cleanse themselves of blacks, Mexicans were jarring again this system. They didn't fit in and they were distressed because, uh, be, be, because of the system. There's even this really, um, who's, is anybody from Texas? There's a yellow rose, right? The yellow rose of Texas. And, and you, have, you know the actual story behind that? It's very weird. It, it, it's a story. The yellow rose of Texas was, was, uh, was, was a light-skinned black girl. And the, and the history is that the, 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 the Anglos in Texas, the Texans, uh, uh, routed the Mexicans because this yellow rose, this black girl from the U.S. side, uh, the American side, went over and was sleeping with General Santana. Even that is this very weird little, you see, they're race mixers. And this is, it's really, it's, I didn't even put that in my book, it was so weird, I wanted to stay clear of it. But what we, <laughs> was that a snort? <laughs> I love it when your professors snort, that's fantastic. Like, like John McCain, did you see the snorting during that debate? Uh, no, did you? It was really remarkable. Um, so, so, so what we're finding here is, is that this is, on one really, um, on one level, it, it, I could put this in, a, in an easy, easy way to visualize. Once we have, um, because we have half of Mexicans splitting other and half of white, let's say in California, what it's doing is it's, it's confusing the overall system. And we had a Mexican-American advocate for the, 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 the ability to, 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 to pick more than one race. What we're, having, what we're seeing is that millions and millions of people are opting out of the racial system. So if, we, if you do have what we have is A, B, C, and D, white, black, Asian, Native American, and you have A, B, C, D, E, none of the above, we're suddenly having millions and millions and millions and millions pushing, bubbling in with the number two pencils, E. And what does that do to the whole system? It undermines not only the validity of the whole system, but it undermines each, in, in, in each discrete category itself. It's again, 
as Mexicans become a larger part of society, it's making it more and more difficult to figure out where we are in this racial scheme. We know that California and California, which has the much higher rate of interracial and interethnic marriage and anywhere in the United States, well, sorry, continental United States, um, Latinos are involved in two-thirds of those in the state of California. They are acting in many ways, the latter generation, this is not the immigrant generation. Immigrants tend to marry among themselves, but there's a higher propensity among the latter generation of Mexican-Americans to, to marry out, and they're serving in some sense as this enzyme. Now, I don't argue that this is some sort of a, a level of assimilation. I'm arguing that this is part and parcel of who we are. It's this protean quality that allowed us to survive in a system that didn't, didn't acknowledge us one way or the other, both in Mexico and in the United States. That this is an ability to, to, to recreate, to reposition, to reposit one's identity racially in order to fit in where you can. It's called survival. And I think this is really, and it's just playing itself out in really, in all sorts of, even after the book was published, in all sorts of really interesting ways. I mean, we, we, I, went to, I was in Detroit, as I mentioned last week, and, and I find out really interesting, the Mexican neighborhood, by the way, uh, obviously blacks, uh, whites have been leaving um, um, Detroit for 50 years. Blacks have begun to leave uh, Detroit in smaller numbers, but they're still leaving now. And it's twice as many Mexicans since 1990. And the neighborhoods that have the, the most stable black-white relationships among residents are the Mexican neighborhoods. Because I'm told that it's the Mexican neighborhood, the Mexicans serve as this buffer between them. You ever notice how there's always like an Eva Mendez in a Will Smith movie? So he doesn't have to kiss the white woman? <laughs> is that just me that noticing that? Or? Uh, so there is, a, there is this aspect of, I mean, she's Cuban-American, but she's from LA, so we, we, we can claim her, right? Um, so, so there is this aspect of Mexicans uh, uh, putting themselves in on a buffer on some level, and of, of really messing up the discourse, of really messing up the way we talk about race. It's unclear now which side, so which side they're on, because they spent much of the 20th century trying to be on the white side, and then the last half, of the last third of the 20th century trying to be on the non-white side. Where are they now? I argue that in the increasingly uh, uh, Latino Southwest, there's less of a need to say you're white or non-white, that there's more of a need to say we are who we are, that we're sort of neither, or we're both, or that there is some sense, again, that, 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 this, that, that, that we're able to sort of capture what our identity has been for 500 years. Uh, Jose Vasconcelos wrote, and it wasn't the famous Raza Cosmica line that struck me, it was that in 1920s he wrote, the Mexican philosopher, uh, uh, he wrote, we are a brand new race, we're not yet congealed. These are, you go to Mexico City, and how many people, I mean, maybe like a fool, I went to see, you know, our sort of Genesis myth, I wanted to see where Doña Marina lived, or Cortes was, you know, you find a bus of Cortes in, in, in the basement of a hospital near the Zócalo, that's it. You go to Coyoacán, you start to see where, where La Malinche, Doña Marina lived, there's no plaque in front of her house. So Mexico has, has had, had, had I, I think I'm on camera so I shouldn't make any sort of rude gestures, but Mexico has sort of disowned both of it, 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 it's, it's patrimony on both sides. Mexico is still struggling. Are, are they indigenous? Are they European? What are they? It depends who you talk to, right? So Mexico itself hasn't figured out its own racial identity. And then people come north and then what the hell do they do? They come to this crazy society, which is identity driven and identity obsessed. 
You know, white people, we talk about white people in the media as if, as if they're one group. I love it. My favorite part of this, uh, this uh, um, presidential campaign is when, when, when Mike Huckabee, my favorite candidate, <laughs> said about Mitt Romney, he said, American people want a, don't want a president who eats his fried chicken with a knife and fork. That's, not, that's a north-south, that's a, that's a class division, that's also an ethnic white thing. He's a northeasterner. Mormons, having largely come from the north, Yankees, came west. And he's, he, he's a Baptist, probably a Scotch-Irish inheritance, but these are things that haven't worked themselves out. But Mexico's even more complicated. And so we're coming into this country, and, 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 and it's really, and the latter generation Mexican American, I'm not, again, it's not the immigrants we're talking about. It's what, it's, it's what these children and grandchildren will do. And we don't really know. Too much of the scholarship and too much of the, the talk about ethnicity in this country speaks about ethnicity as if we, the same way we spoke about race for so long, which is that it's unchanging, unmalleable, fixed in biology. And we talk about Mexicans in the future as if, as if we, we knew how your great-grandchildren are going to behave. We have no clue. Who, I like to say, who could have imagined Woody Allen in 1903, Lower East Side? What a nightmare. <laughs> Dean Martin. Could, was he in the mind of any Italian grandma from, from Sicily? Could she imagine that, that cultural permutation or deformation, if you will. I mean, I mean you know, this, this, is, this, this is still moving. And, and partly what I'm trying to do is, is to show not only how it's moved in the past, not the shifts and the, and the, and the, and the, and the battles throughout time between Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. It's, we speak in these big, clunky, generalized terms about race and ethnicity in this country. And it's so much more uh, uh, nuanced than that. And that's, and that's what I think the Mexican-Americanization of the, of, the, of the way we talk about race in the United States is not making it any clearer. <laughs> it's making it messier. It's, 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 making, it's making a more honest portrait and therefore a more screwed up portrait. We have little idea what we, I mean, who works with Census Bureau and, and Census data on this crowd? I mean, nothing adds up to 100% anymore. Already we've reached this point and it will increase. I'm not arguing that race is going to disappear. It's not. Distinctions will remain, again, even between you know, the knife and uh, fork eating southern chicken eaters. But it'll be more malleable. It'll be, and, and a Barack Obama presidency clearly, on some level, will be seeing race in an entirely new way. Mexicans aren't mixing this country themselves. We know that we, we have the Tiger Woodization, as Tavis Smiley said to me during one interview of America. It's happening. Americans are mixing in different ways. What they're, but what they're doing is they're hastening the process with their numbers and their numbers of outmarriage, and they're also bringing a language. The LA Times uses the word mestizo without defining it now. They're bringing this language. Remember, uh, uh, these words, uh, uh, the words for mix was a, bad, was, was a na nasty, vulgar word in, in English. Uh, 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 Half-read. What's the other one? Uh, uh, yeah, mutt. Did you really say that? So they're bringing us sort of, sort of inevitably, they're bringing a language and they're helping, they're helping us adopt this and sort of brought, the way I put it is this, the United States specific religion for so long was the melting pot. And we know now the melting pot was really exclusive to white ethnics. 
It was not open to, to blacks. Uh, we know this Israel Zangwill who popularized the, the, the notion of the melting pot in 1909 with his play in Washington, D.C., and Theodore Roosevelt was present, was present at, at, at the, at the uh, premiere of that play. Even in, in the play, I don't know, it's this cheesy, melodramatic play about the, the, the uh, forgive me, I forget when's the daughter or the son, but it's the, it's the, 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 the the, the daughter and son of a, of a, of a, of a Russian who was, uh, forgive me, I, don't, I forgot which one, uh, 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 who, who was involved in a pogrom against Jews, and then and the daughter or son of a Jew who was a victim of that pogrom, and they married in the United States. The idea was the crucible of races that were enemies elsewhere would come to the United States. Even Israel Zangwill in a 1916, uh, uh, a little afterward in a published book said, well, I didn't mean racial mixing. He said, I, uh, what I, was, I wasn't arguing for any gamic interaction with blacks, only culturally so. So, we, so, the, so, the, so our melting pot myth was always incomplete. It was, one of, it was for ethnic whites, it wasn't for races. So what we have now is, is, a, is, a, is a new sort of melting pot. It's a melting pot of races that's coming from the South. And that this melting pot of races didn't become superimposed in our incomplete melting pot of white ethnicity. It seems to me that that helps broaden our sense of what we already claim that we are, is a mixed country. It's helping us, and, and the Mexicanization of the United States will help us conceptualize what it was we've always been proud to be, which is a mixed nation. Um, and that's where I'm going to end it. Thank you very much. Yes, please. There's no, Mike's not on. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Uh, when I came to America from England, I, I had to stop driving on the left-hand side of the road and learn how to drink coffee and so on. Um, why is it that so many Latinos do not seem to adapt to survive in this country? Like they, they drive around with no licenses and no insurance and ride their bikes on the sidewalk. It's, it's stupid but stuff that gets, in the way, that gets in the yeah. way of progress. Right. Well, let me answer that question. First of all, I, it, it's, there's two different, you're asking two different questions. The, 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 the question of, of driving around uh, without a license probably has to do with having no, has to do with the law and has to do with being documented or not documented. But the overall issue of whether Mexicans have traditionally, we have, we have precedent to this. The problem, the problem with, with the way we talk about Hispanics or Latinos is that we usually understand the whole with the part. We do know that over time Mexicans have traditionally acculturated into the United States. We do, we have clear census data, clear census data that the children of immigrants, 98% speak English and Spanish. We do know that by the third generation, and this is, the, this is, this is 1990 and 2000 data, Third generation Mexican-American children aged 5 to 18 in 1990, 65% by the third generation, that means the grandchildren of the first, first government, two-thirds only spoke English. I'm not celebrating that, but that's just a fact. Only a third were bilingual. Now, you think that during the 90s, with this huge influx of, 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 of migrants in the South, and from the, the, the huge uh, increase in, in excuse me, in um, Spanish language media, that that would slow down the language acculturation. In, in 2000, 72% of third generation Mexican American children aged five to 18 spoke only English. So number one, it's not true that they don't acculturate over time. It's just simply not true. One of the great books was, uh, on, in Chicano history is written here about Santa Barbara. Uh, Chicano's in a changing society. Uh, he's a professor, was he a professor at Berkeley? 
What's his name? Uh, Albert Camarillo. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful, it's a very interesting book about mid-20th century Santa Barbara. And you see already, he writes, and this is, a, the Mexicans and the Mexican-Americans weren't one people. They had different languages, and they drove different cars, and they even had different rates of, uh, you know, uh, buying insurance. And, 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 what and, and, what we, and what we see, and what we see is, is, is that during time, and this is what happened, I mean, you didn't ask this. But when we do see unity of any sort, and I, I must argue that Mexicans are not great with unity among each other. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing, I just think that's the, that's the, that's the nature of a, of a mestizo people on some level. Um, that that, that, that um, what we see is that Mexican Americans tend over time to distance themselves from Mexicans. On some level, because they live in different, they speak different core languages, they watch different television shows, there's certainly overlap. But there's a, the acculturation makes, separates them on many levels. Now, when they find unity is usually when there's an anti-immigrant backlash. And the Mexican-American, let me give you an example, 1994, Proposition 187. Uh, okay, um, let's say the late summertime, we knew that about half of Latino voters, vast majority of Mexican-Americans, particularly in 1994, vast majority back then were native-born, if not the latter generation, half of Mexican-Americans were gonna vote in favor of 187 by the summer of 1994. But as, the, as, the, as the, 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 the election day got closer, the rhetoric, the racial rhetoric became more and more outrageous. And Mexican-Americans who don't necessarily have an affinity for undocumented Mexicans suddenly said, oh my God, the Anglos, are they, making, are they thinking I'm one of them? And then unity is created. Then Mexican-Americans vote for, against, they vote to protect Mexican illegal immigrants to protect themselves because you don't know if they're talking about you. I have a really rich aunt who's married to a Hungarian man from Chicago and she's lived in a sort of upper class white society all her life. She cried the day 187 won because she suddenly realized, oh my God, they're not making distinctions. And so there is, so, so, so I mean, it's, that's why I said we have to be careful. There is acculturation. There's, there's proof of it, there's, there's precedent for it, um, but the stuff you're talking about is generally probably about the fact that they're illegal and they can't get, they can't get insurance and they can't get driver's license. But that's, but that's, a, different, that's a different Gregory, there's question. a question yeah. on this side. Yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you, Mr. Rodriguez. Um, your, your talk reminded me a little bit of Ronaldo Fernandez's book, uh, Beyond Black and White, How Immigrants Are Helping Us Overcome the Racial Divide. And also, yeah, and also of um, Richard Rodriguez's notion of, uh, you know, brown as brown as the future, we're all going to become a mixed nation. But I was wondering, how can we avoid falling back onto celebratory right. hybridity and mestizaje, right? right? Because if you look at Mexico, it is a mestizo right. nation, but it is a nation in which indigenous people are still descent from, right? And if you look at Brazil, it's a mulatto nation, right. but black people are 90% of the people that right. are in prison, and right. the government looks like it's Sweden. Um, on the other hand, uh, let's Lula, see. Lula does not look Swedish. No, no. Sorry. <laughs> you were going great until that's that That's true, one. that's true. You overreached. Um, and then I was saying something else. You mentioned Vasconcelos and, of, I mean, you know, La Raza Cosmica, and 
that Mexicans were going to become a brand new race. No, 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 no. I said they, they were uncongealed. I, did, I wasn't oh, okay. using Brazos Cosmica. You're, that's a second miscitation. Okay, let's not talk about... Let's get to your okay. question now. You're, you're losing credibility. Um, <laughs> maybe I didn't have it in the first place. <laughs> no, I said it wasn't but anyways, Cosmica. <laughs> and then something else that I was going to say is that you, you said that Obama sticks to the one rule. But uh, in a way, you know, the Mexican elite sticks to the zero drop rule, which is total denial of their African Absolutely. ancestry. Uh, so what was the question now? How can we move on from, you know, uh, even seeing acculturation as any type of goal that should be reached and move, up, move away from whiteness as a fluid category to a category, uh, to a category that actually nobody has to aspire to in order to be president? Right. Or anything. It's a very good question. And I think, I think I am touching that question when I said, I already think to the point where we are numerous and feeling more secure. And that's the biggest event in, in Mexican American, uh, for Mexican Americans in my mind in the last 30 years, is our sense of confidence. You know, Mayor Villaraigosa, you know, he and I don't, don't like each other much, but he's been great for the city in the sense that there's a certain pride that it's our time. Not to the exclusion of someone else, but there is this sense, I do believe there is this sense that we don't, we're not fighting to be white or black anymore. I do feel there's a sense that we're just, we're mestizos, we are who we are. I do feel that we're reaching, that's sort of what I'm arguing. Number two, yes, I'm not arguing that the Mexican, again, Mexico is not any paradise of race. Um, but, but I do think that, I mean, I do think that the U.S. society has been less oppressive, oppressive to us on some level to, on the basis of color than even Mexico has. Um, and, and so, um, how do we move? I, I, I don't think we should move away from. I, I mean, one of the things I've always argued is assimilation. You can't. It's silly to be pro or con it. It's. It's like I'm against hurricanes. Stop them. You know. I, you know. You know. I'm. You know. They do so much damage. You know. Stop. And, and, and the, the point is, is that it happens. And, and the way I look at assimilation is, I'm like Jesus. We turn it into some 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 negative word. It's all it is is people moving from point A to point B and changing some mores or some standards or the way they behave in order to improve their chances and their children's chances of survival. That's why I'm telling this gentleman, that's what people do. We, we romanticize immigrants, we particularly romanticize Mexicans as being somehow preternaturally resistant to change. The opposite is true if you read Mexican history closely. You read uh, Professor Garcia's book, uh, Instances, I believe it's your book, in which people came across and were start wearing Levi's on day three. We, the, the Mexicans have been incredibly adaptable, incredibly smart about their ability to change. We're giving credit both from left and right, before, both from uh, pro-Mexicans and anti-Mexicans that were somehow so romantic about where we came from. Where did we come from? We don't even know where we came from. We're still working it out, and we're willing to make these changes. So I don't think assimilation is a bad thing. Assimilation racially, that's what you mean. Yes, I think that's ending. But two, I think people will do what they need to survive and what they need to improve their children's chances of survival, and that's not a bad thing. Thank you. That was a good question. Over here on this side, yeah. <clears throat> I just had a question that was related to the, the soft boundary of 1519 in some respects, and that is if you go deep or deeper into Spain, right. you see also yep. a, the, the same reflection of uh, mixing and, right. and marriage and, and, and things like that and rape. And Carlos Fuentes did that in the buried marriage. Yeah. Right. And so one, the question that I had is, in some respects, what I got from your talk today is that what, what we see is more of a reflection of imperialism in, in, uh, in, in this mixing, that as, as 
a power moves forward into occupation, right. it receives something in return. And I'd like you to see the U.S. as potentially an imperial force also reflects the same return and moving this forward. Is really, I, I don't keep say well, I mean, one line, all imperial forces, whether they're out there for water or human resources right. and labor, food, questions of security, as they, they go and occupy an alternative place with oh, people. I, see. I mean, they're talking about the... the there's a return the to it. Returning. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I'd like you to reflect on that a little bit. Well, I mean, I, I, that's a great question. I think, I mean, on, on some level, if I were really honest at the end of this talk, which I will not be, is that these forces continue to play each other out. Absolutely. I mean, we're not, this is not, this, is, this sort of Anglo-American view of race is not going to disappear. It's certainly going to remain in northern Minnesota. It will, it will remain in New Hampshire, trust me. But it will play, you're right, it will play itself out on some level in the, the portions of the country that are heavily Mexican. And as, but, but the difference is, is that the country, the, 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 and already, you look at the first two, you know, you're going to get some hisses for that, but, but the first two states that challenged affirmative action first were the states with the largest number of Mexicans. Because what it did was it, it upended the political calculus that allowed for affirmative action to exist. Texas has since reimposed it through other means. But what happened was, whites were all for, I mean, just example, whites were all for affirmative action, but it's for 6% of the population. That doesn't threaten them, doesn't threaten their children, um, their ability to get into colleges. But once you were adding immigrants to that level, to that number, and the number of the percentage of people who were eligible for affirmative action got to 40, 45% of the population, then whites were not going to go for it. And it's really hard to argue that maybe they shouldn't have or should have. But Mexicans upended that racial calculus, that, that old binary which part, where affirmative action came out of. So I think we're going to be working through that. I mean, in ways, this, this will be something we'll be grappling with, I think. And we'll be grappling with it in sort of all sorts of part of our lives. Um, I, this is, and, and I think, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question, but you, you, you just gave me my next book or something. <laughs> so thank you. Gregory, another question over here. Yeah. Uh, for, for those of you that want to purchase a copy of one of his, of his book and then meet him up here as well. So this is our last question. This has to do with the future of immigration. Um, people move from A to B because they think it's a good idea right. for them. Uh, right now, things are slow in the United States. It, to a certain extent, it's slowed down the immigration. Some people are going back. Uh, there's a projection that sometime in the next two to four years that Mexico will Population cease... Population implosion. Yeah, go ahead. See, Mexico will cease to export oil. Oh. They will no longer have it. That provides most of their federal budget. Uh, Mexico might go into a considerable more contraction than the United States, hmm. and uh, which might have a large number of people saying, let's go from point A to point B, much more than before. It may really fall into... Uh, Four times. Right. So, just any ideas about that? Well, how that might how that might evolve? Well, there's there's some, there's an interesting sort of counter statistic, which I, th these would work together in some interesting way, okay. in that we know that Mexico's Mexico is having a population implosion now. We know the demographers are saying by 2011 that the, the the Mexico the number of people in Mexico that are that are unemployed or underemployed will de will decrease to such an extent by 2011 and will decrease for as long as we can see. So we're already, you know, we're already seeing, we're already, so demographers in Mexico are already predicting a huge slowdown in the number of people who feel the need to move north. So that coupled with if the economy is bad here, I don't know, going to bad to bad, 
Um, you know what I mean? And if you're going to bad to bad, you usually choose the default home, where at least you have love. You know. True. <laughs> you know, see, somebody's not going to beat you on the head. Right. So, um, yeah, it, it, but yeah, I think those are interesting to, to speculate about what that's going to happen. Right now, from all predictions, that the Mexican, there'll be fewer people who will feel obliged to move north as we look at the future. Okay. Thank you. And, and lastly, just lastly, we're seeing the percentage of the, of the Latino population, the Mexican-American population that is foreign-born, ha, ha reached its peak in the mid-90s. So as we look to 2040, the Latino population will increasingly be U.S.-born. So the biggest chunk of that population is no longer, it, it, the fastest growing is the second and third generation. So it comes, from, it comes from an immigrant, heavily immigrant population to a heavily ethnic American population in the course of 40 years. That's a whole different ballgame. This is a whole different population who speaks, they, they speak, they have different home languages. They, have, you know, they watch Seinfeld more than Jorge, Jorge Ramos. And it's, it, it's a whole different uh, uh, ballgame. Thank you very much. Gregory, I'm going to take my prerogative and just uh, ask one sh a short question from one of our students. Yeah, um, first of all, I wanted to say, sorry if this is a little unclear, I'm a confused undergrad. That's cool. Okay, uh, I agree that uh, Mexicans are raising a consciousness to point out that every single person is a multi-race because um, it's a racist, unstable construct, right? Mm -hmm. So everybody's multiracial. Everybody, not just in the United States, but in the world. But don't you think it's a problem that we have to use strategies of assimilation that in terms reiterate the reiterate whiteness as something uh, better than the other. Didn't I answer this color. question? Did, well, didn't you? Yeah, but been, I'll answer it again. Um, the, the, I, I do think it's I, I, think, I do think it's a problem. One, on one level, I think survival survival. And I'm not going to disparage Mexican immigrants for hundreds of years or whoever immigrants who sought to fight, find better lives for their children. I'm not. And to disparage them is a silly academic practice. You know, I mean, just, you know, you're going to have children, you love them, and someone's going to spit on them or mistreat them for being this way, and you're going to say, they're not this way. What are you going to say? No, they are this way. Hit them. You protect them. You find strategies to protect your children. Um, so no, I, on some level, yes, I do think it's a shame that that was required, that whiteness was privileged in both Mexico and the U.S. But as I'm arguing now, I think the confidence we're having in the Southwest and the diminution of the white population, I think we are embracing our brownness in ways we never did before. You see what I mean? I don't think it's required. I, again, I do believe assimilation and, and the way you put it racially will probably remain the same in South Carolina. Assimilation is always a numbers game. So, I mean, if you're one in 20 in a small town in Kansas, you're probably going to do exactly what you don't want them to do. But it's probably going to happen less in the Southwest, where we're feeling more confident. So, yes. So, one, first answer to your question is, I'll never disparage someone for protecting their children and trying to have a better life for them, one. And two, yes, I think using race and, and the white, whiteness as your protection is becoming less of an effective, effective policy. But remember, but what's so good about saying you're suddenly people of color? That's the same thing. I mean, you were privileging whiteness, then we privileged non-whiteness. When you think about it, what was better about that? It was still adopting an identity you didn't have before to better your chances of getting some sort of job later. If you're going to think one's bad, you've got to think both are bad. They're both playing the system. The problem wasn't the playing the system, the problem was the system itself. Thank you. Let's give a standing ovation to Gregory Rodriguez. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.